As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The Lay Vocation. The Leaven in the Dough. A talk by Father Dave Callahan. The topic of this talk is, or it's called The Leaven in the Dough, how the lay vocation is meant to subvert the current reality and create a whole new world. Uh, but I think if I was to give it a, an alternative title, it would basically be stop being a spectator and get in the game. In any sporting match, there are three layers. You've got the people on the field, the people in the grandstand, and the people at home watching the television. And I challenge you to ask, okay, where are you? I'm not sure whether you actually seriously ask yourself that question. I was su- suggesting that the majority of Catholics are probably in the grandstand. Um, we've got the other sort of nominal Catholics who are probably at home watching on television. You know, they'll turn up occasionally. They'll call themselves Catholic. I think that very few Catholics are really in the game. As much as we celebrate and we cheer and we attend all the events, in terms of having a real active vision for what you're meant to be doing, like what your mission is in the world, I think that's actually quite rare. And if I dare say it, it's probably even not that common even amongst some of the clergy. Yeah, that might be a bit controversial, but the church is so focused in on itself most the average parish priest is simply trying to make sure that he's still got a parish by the end of the year. Um, so he's trying to make sure that his parishioners are comfortable and well-fed. It's, it's a little bit like the people at a football game going around selling peanuts, you know. <laughs> um, make sure that you're comfortable in the grandstands and you're not going to go home. And, and there's, a, there's kind of that question, have we even forgotten what the game is? Have we forgotten what the battle is we're meant to be engaged in? Which is really the salvation of the world. Now, I wanted to start by reading you an article, if you can forgive me for this. I just want to read, this is an extract from an article written by a young Catholic. And um, if you can, just try and get an idea of when this was written. So this is about the Australian Church. He says, In a number of ways, the Catholic Church appears to be one of the most active and flourishing religious communions in the English-speaking world. Despite losses, the mass of loyal adherents remains impressive. It is sufficient to sustain a vast organisation of churches, schools, seminaries, religious orders, hospitals, orphanages and works of charity. The new youth movements, whose aim is to secure the the, the Christian loyalty and harness the zeal of, of adolescence, are flourishing. Catholics are prominent in public life and in the public field, in the political field. On great occasions, congresses, centenaries and the like, They display faith with a militant mass enthusiasm and devotion, which is very impressive indeed. Then he says, so much for the credit side. There is another side of the Australian Catholic picture upon which far too few appear to reflect seriously at all. The large Catholic body remains almost wholly ineffectual as as regards the Christianization of the thinking and social outlook of the community at large. On the whole, it must be said that while Catholics dwell in the midst of their fellow citizens very comfortably, the church still remains an alien, incomprehensible, slightly repugnant thing in the eyes of those who are in daily and quite friendly contact with its adherents. 
I think that we shall have to admit that the Catholic Church in Australia is simply failing to fulfill its most thorough duty, so its vital duty to the life of the nation. It isn't leaving anything much. No noticeable fire or light from it is spread through the dark world of secularism. Almost the whole of its plant, its organisation and its zeal are devoted to the task of preserving the loyalty of the faithful and handing on the tradition inherited by them. Not only do Catholics fail to leaven the other four-fifths with spiritual sanity and realism, but they themselves are leavened with the corruption and illusion of the materialist order around them. The truth is that in spite of everything that has been said and done about Catholic action and, uh, and the apostolate of the laity, the average good Catholic in this country still fails to think of the conversion of Australia as the real aim of the church, in whose achievement he could actively interest himself as part of, the, uh, as part of his duty. The typical pillar of the church thinks of his faith as a treasure to be guarded by those privileged to possess it, just as his Irish ancestors guarded in the, in the age of persecution, but not as a seed of life to be sown here and there, wherever an opportunity arises. The cause of the comparative ineffectiveness of Catholicism as a social and cultural force in this country is very simple. It is not mobilised as a church militant, except for defence. Its clergy and people are not outward-looking as a whole or visibly conscious of the duty to go to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. The faith must be grasped not as a tradition, but as a statement of what the world is really like and what life is really for. The Catholic of tomorrow must be an adventurous spiritual aggressor, not a builder of new defences or ways of security. The parish and family must be powerhouses radiating faith outwards, not merely nests in which the Christian chickens can live safe from the hovering hawks of unbelief and moral corruption. If this change is accomplished, we shall probably find Christian living a good deal more dangerous and exciting, for the enemies of the cross will become more active and bitter as, as it is raised on high and draws the eyes and hearts of men. But if it is not accomplished, we shall not long be safe. The secular pressure will continue to grow in every field. Politics, education, social life will become more and more thoroughly de-Christianized, our own community more completely infected with diseased thought and values, until Catholics are reduced to dwelling in the catacombs of the secular prison house. The only thing that can stand against the weight of these forces is the dynamic love, so the, the dynamic power of love of the Christian community, organized for spiritual conquest, burning with zeal for the conversion of Australia. Any idea when that was written? Last week? 1949. Young English guy by the name of Dennis Jackson travelled to Melbourne, was studying at Melbourne University, and only about a year after he arrived, he wrote that article for a journal called uh, 20th Century, I think the journal was called. I remember reading that when I was in the seminary and thinking the same thing. It was written last week. Anything, man, that was 60, 70 years ago. But it, it, I think it's one of the most prophetic things ever written about the church here in Australia. Um, and what, what saddens me is that seemingly nothing has changed. 
It seems as though we're still in the same position. We're still focusing on defence. We still have no real idea of what we're meant to be doing, like what the game is, what's the battle. So I think this is where we need to come back and look again, okay, what actually is our mission as a church? You know, I've been talking in the last few talks about how we are living in a world which is thoroughly secular and we have allowed ourselves to be colonised by this secular thinking where Christianity now becomes all about me. It's a, it's a lifestyle choice. It's another self-improvement option. Um, Jesus is there to serve me because I'm the centre of the universe. Uh, he's there to make my life awesome. Um, and how that's actually completely the opposite to what it should be. <laughs> you know, it should actually be the fact that we recognise that he is Lord of the universe and we submit ourselves completely to him. And we realise that we have the gift of the resurrection. We have the gospel of life. We have the ability to bring life out of death to a world that is dying. And we need to allow that to actually wake us up seriously, to realise, okay, we've, we're the only thing standing between the world and hell. Because the world is pretty much heading in one direction. It is falling apart rapidly. Um, we're the only thing standing in the way of that. And if, if we hunker back down into you know, these sort of Catholic fallout shelters, then we are failing our duty and we'll have to answer before Christ for that because it, it, it's kind of the lifeboat mentality. You know, it's this idea, okay, the ship is sinking, but we've got a lifeboat, and that's all that matters. Okay, we're going to be safe. You know, and if we just focus on trying to keep this lifeboat beautiful, you know, so that we, we, then we're safe, we're okay. And we just try not to look at all the other people who are drowning and screaming for help. You know, but I think that's very much where the church is at. You know, we are so focused inwards out of fear, like it's out of genuine fear that we're going to drown as well. But I think Christ is calling us to say, look at the other people in the water. You know, realize that you've got the only salvation here. Okay, they're all screaming out for a lifeboat. Can you find room for them? We're talking primarily here about the, the lay vocation. And I think we need to sort of step back and say, okay, what are we talking about here? The Second Vatican Council, it, it was a mess, you know, it, it, because any time you try and bring about a massive cultural change, you're always going to end up with a mess. But basically, to give you a context, go back to the French Revolution, because that's really where it all started. Uh, you had a radical change to Europe, um, phenomenal change. You went from hundreds and hundreds of years of monarchy, everything just kind of ticking along quite well, and suddenly the whole order was tipped upside down. And it went to absolute chaos rapidly. You know, the, you know, the reign of terror, you just had thousands of priests losing their heads, thousands of nuns being killed, clergy fleeing across the borders for their lives. Within a couple of, you know, within a decade, it got to the point where people had never even heard the word God. You know, young children had never even heard the name God because it went atheist so rapidly. And this spread across Europe like a plague. And the church had no idea what to do. And pretty much what the church did was lock itself away behind the walls of the Vatican and say, we don't believe you exist. <laughs> now, that's, that's a very simplified version of complicated history. But in a sense, that's what we did. We said, 
this is going to fail, this is going to fall, and we're just going to hide until it does, and then we'll come back and re-establish it. And in some sense, that did happen. Europe did kind of revert back to a, a little bit of sanity for a while. Didn't last very long, though. Um, but really, it wasn't until... I mean, it's a, it's a pretty much... I mean, the, Pope John Twenty-Third was the first pope to step outside the walls of the Vatican for about 150 years. Um, every pope prior to that had just locked himself in the walls, you know, refused to acknowledge that Italy existed because they didn't like the idea of a, of a republic. <laughs> um, what the pope was doing, and, you know, like, like I say, there are so many polarised views of Pope John Twenty-Third and whether he was good or bad or whatever. Basically, he recognised that this is not going to go away. Um, if we're hoping that the world is somehow going to wake up to itself and return back to the ancient regime um, and, and repent and say, okay, we realised the church was right and we were wrong, it's not going to happen. And we need to be in there trying to change it. We, we can't step away from the world and wait for it to see the error of its ways. We have to be in there. And that will be messy. That will be compromised, as it always is. Like, there is no clear black and white when you're in the middle of a battle. And really, so what the Pope did is he called us to step into that. Now, once again, I think it's, for us, it's hard to realise what was actually going on in that time. The Second Vatican Council started, it was like four days before the Cuban Missile Crisis started. Um, this was the closest the world ever came to annihilating itself in nuclear war. Yeah, and none of us lived then. You know, we, we don't understand how tense that actually was. Um, I remember hearing a story of a priest who... There was a, there was a huge American airbase near Oxford in England, and this priest was a chaplain to the airbase. And he told about how every day the B-52 bombers would take off loaded with nuclear weapons heading for Moscow every morning. And as they got to the border, they would get the call saying, turn around, come back. Um, that, that was the world they were living in, you know, where every day they were expecting we may have to drop a bomb. Um, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, this priest was saying he was chatting to one of the pilots and the pilot said, look, we've just got the orders that if we take off tomorrow, we're not coming back because it's on, okay? That's nuclear war. And so they were sitting in the chapel, 6 a.m. that morning, and they hear the planes fly overhead. And they look at each other and they think, we've got two hours, and then it's the end of the world. That was the world when the Second Vatican Council was on. And it was this urgency where the Pope was sort of realising, we can't just sit back and be spectators. We can't just sit back and wait for it to work itself out, because... It might be over in a couple of years' time. You know, this is our only chance to get in there and try and bring some spiritual sanity back to this world. We, we have to be in there. And so this is where the church really kind of looked back and said, well, let's rediscover what the early documents say. And, and, and this was the key thing about the Second Vatican Council. Everyone gets caught up with arguments about liturgy and, um, you know, all, all sorts of all those things of the church, but, but really what it was trying to do was say, let's look back, because like, they'd recently rediscovered so many of the early documents that had never been translated. And they went back and said, okay, how was the early church living? And what they said was, look, they lived in a time where 
everyone understood their mission. The church was not divided into the missionaries and then everyone else. Everyone was a missionary. Everyone saw that they had a place in the world and they had a responsibility to try and transform the world. And so this was the, the, the key thing about the Second Vatican Council was about evangelization. It's like I say, everyone got caught up with stuff around the liturgy and around sexual morality. The main thing was evangelization. And, and Pope Paul VI came out later to, he, he released the encyclical Evangelii Nunciandi, basically as a summary of the whole, Vatican, the whole of the Second Vatican Council. He said, okay, guys, you've missed the point. You're all arguing about the wrong stuff. It was about evangelization. And so here is the summary version. If you've never read Evangelii Nunciandi, you need to look online and find it, okay? Um, because basically what, what the, the church was calling us to was to rediscover that we have a mission in the world. We need to be in there bringing the light of Christ into the darkness. Now, the key thing, and probably the really revolutionary thing about it, was that it was a call to lay people to rediscover their vocation. So a number of the documents spoke about how there is a universal call to holiness, where the church had started to develop this idea that holiness is for the special ones, okay, the priests, the religious, the nuns. Um, you can't be holy unless you've got a habit. Um, and we're saying that's not actually what Christ was talking about. Christ was saying all of you are meant to be saints. You are meant to be a saint. If you are not a saint, you have failed your baptismal calling. I hope you realize that. Okay, if that is not your number one priority, you are missing the point. Okay, you are not meant to just be good. You are meant to actually be transformed into the likeness of God. That's what your baptism was about. So that was one of the key things. Vatican II was saying, remember your baptism. Your baptism was the fact that you were anointed as priest, prophet, and king. Don't know whether you've ever been to a baptism recently. After the priest baptizes the child, he takes the oil of chrism, and he anoints their foreheads, saying, I anoint you as priest, prophet, and king. That you are anointed with the mission of Christ. You are anointed to be another Christ in the world. And it astounds me how many Catholics don't know about that. <laughs> so many people have never heard that before. Or if they do hear it, they think, oh, surely that's wrong. Maybe that's only for the priests. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, you've got to understand, you have been anointed with the power of Christ so that you would be Christ in the world. It's, it's an incarnational reality. Like you are meant to be him in the world, bringing the light of Christ with you. And, and so this, this is really what the Second Vatican Council was calling us to re rediscover. You know, we, we had for so many centuries had this idea that the priests and the religious are the ones who, they do the mission and the lay people, your job is just, just to pray, pay, and obey. Okay? Pay your tithes, pray your prayers, and just obey the priest. That's all you need to do. I think what, what the Pope was calling us to, and what the Popes have been calling us to ever since, is to say, look outside the bubble. Okay? We've been so focused on this Catholic bubble. 
looking inwards. Have a look outside and see what's going on. Look outside and see the chaos. Look outside and see the suicides, the depression, the drug use, the self-harm, the, the, the marriage breakdown, and realise that it's your job to fix it. You're the ones that Christ, you're the only ones that Christ has to fix that. You know, look at the chaos that's going on on the political level, you know, the, the civil level. The ideological side of things that's going on, like even for you guys at a university level, you're, you're in a hotbed of ideological you know, conflict. Um, you're not meant to just be hiding behind the trenches. You're actually meant to be in the thick of that. You know, that's your job. You're the only ones that can potentially get in there and change that. If I can go back and use a bit of history as an, as an example of this. Just really quick idea. Like, so, so I mentioned before about how the Pope didn't particularly like to recognise the existence of Italy. Um, the, the church didn't really agree with the idea of a, of a republic. And part of that was because we were so much in protest against it, the, the church basically encouraged people not to participate in, in elections. They said, you know, we don't we want to even be part of this because we think the whole thing is corrupt. And so for a long time, Catholics in Italy didn't engage in elections. But what that meant was it created a vacuum where everyone else got in there, you know, the fascists, the communists, everyone else took over. And then we stood back and said, see, we told you it was bad. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. Wherever Catholics have stepped away from their duty and allowed there to be a vacuum, everyone else has rushed in to fill it. And I think what we're seeing currently today is a similar thing, where we see the public space being filled by everyone else. It's because we have stepped away from the public space. We have stepped away from politics, stepped away from the ideological battles. We've, you know, we, we, we've created a space where everyone else just walks straight in. Um, and this, as I say, this is where we've got to rediscover our mission in the world. Now, I'm talking here particularly about the lay vocation. The lay vocation is something which we don't talk enough about. It, it's probably the silent vocation, the unspoken of vocation in the church. Um, I, just before coming here, I had a quick search up on YouTube looking for any videos on the lay Catholic vocation. I think I found one. Stacks of videos about priestly vocations, consecrated vocations, vocation to be a monk, vocation to be a this. Um, lay vocation, not much at all. Amongst Catholics, almost nothing. You look amongst Protestant churches and they have some degree of a theology. Um, they're much better than we are, I think because they haven't got the focus on priestly and consecrated vocations that we have. Um, but I think that's tragic. I, I think that is a dangerous thing <laughs> because the vast majority of Catholics are lay people and we have not given them any formation at all. There, there is this silence. You know, we are not saying anything. Um, I was, I was astounded a couple of, it was last year, I was filling in for Mass in Goulburn, um, the Goulburn Parish, and I forget what the readings were, but I, but I was preaching about the lay vocation, about how you've been anointed as priest, prophet and king, you need to be out there in the world 
doing sacrifice in your priestly role, you know, a sacrifice of worship. You need to be prophetic in speaking the truth. You need to be kingly in, in using your authority to bring life to people. And as far as I was concerned, this is just basic theology 101. Um, I was astounded that for the next month, everywhere I went around Canberra, I had people coming up to me thanking me for the homily. I'm like, how many people were at that church? <laughs> like I said, it feels like everyone in Canberra was in Goulburn that weekend. Um, but but what it, as I started to reflect on it, I started to realise none of them had ever heard that before. You know, these are people who had been going to church for 60 years. They'd never heard anyone say, you've actually got a vocation as a layperson. I'm like, we're doing something wrong. We've missed the point. <laughs> so very, very simply... What is your vocation as a layperson? Jesus uses this idea of the leaven in the dough. Basically, like you can't see the leaven, like the yeast. You know, when you sit down for lunch, pull apart your bread roll and see if you can spot the yeast. You can't. Um, but you can see the effects of it. You can, like the very fact that your, your bread roll is nice and squishy and you know, beautifully puffy bread. That, that means that the yeast has been there, it's done its job. Um, to a large degree, that, that, that's a, that really is a great image for the lay vocation. You look at us, priests and deacons and religious, you can see us. Uh, we wear funny clothes. Um, you know, we, we're up front, we jump around wearing robes and things like this. Like, like it, you, you can see where we are. A lot of lay people feel like they're not doing anything because they're not noticed, you know, or they're not up front. You know, they're, they're not in a position of authority to teach people. But that's the whole point. You are this unseen influence. But, but you are creating a, probably a greater influence than we ever could. Basically, what, the way that the lay mission is meant to work is that you immerse yourself in the Catholic teaching. You've got to understand the scriptures. I don't know whether you guys actually sit down and read the Bible, but you need to. Okay, read the word, read the word, read the word, read the word. Okay, can I keep saying that more and more? Read the scriptures. Like, like seriously, if you actually want to, well, firstly, survive as a Catholic, but if you then actually want to be effective as a Catholic, you need to be reading at least a chapter of the gospel every night before you go to sleep. Um, you, you need to try and set yourself the task of reading the New Testament two or three times every year, like from start to finish. Like, like, let it sink into you so deeply that it just starts to ooze out of you. You know when someone's eaten too much garlic? And for days later, you know that they've just eaten too much garlic? It's the same thing with the scriptures, okay? If you eat too much of the scriptures, it oozes out of you. Like, like you're not even trying to preach. It's going to come out through everything you do. People are going to smell it on you, okay? You've got to read the word, okay? But you've also got to immerse yourself into the best of Catholic teaching. And really the whole point of this is that it starts to shape your values. Your philosophy of the world, your philosophy of what it means to be a human being starts to be shaped by, by what you believe. I, once again, if I dare say, the vast majority of Catholics have their faith over here and their values and their beliefs over here. They're actually two separate things. Okay, when I'm in church mode, when I step into the bubble, of course I believe what the church believes. Yes, we're all good Christians. But in the rest of the world, I'm thinking as a secular person. Um, you know, just live for myself, get what I need. 
okay, compromise my morals, whatever it takes just to be able to advance. You need to get to a point where these two things are the same. You know, that, that you're, you're sort of living on this fully integrated vision of who, of who you are, like what your values are. At that point, you can start having influence. Okay, until you do that, you're not going to do much at all. Okay, so, so the time that you guys are in now, while you're young, while you're single, while you're studying, this is the most important time for you as a layperson. Basically, you're laying down the foundation for your future mission. You've got time now to pray. You've got time to study. You know, when you've got five kids and you're working 12 hours a day, you're not really going to have that much time. Um, so you've got to use your youth well. But this is where you've got to have a vision for what you're actually training yourself for. Basically, what we're trying to do here is be influencing your little part of the world. Sometimes when people talk about lay mission, what they actually talk about is lay people doing a clerical mission. Okay, so lay people will go and start to run conferences and events and prayer services and basically do what priests and religious used to do. That's not really the lay mission. Um, that's important because there's not as many of us as there used to be. But once again, you're still inside the Catholic bubble. Um, so much of our mission happens inside the bubble. We're simply evangelizing other Catholics who are already evangelized. Your real mission as a layperson is to be outside the bubble. You need to be out there in the world amongst people who would never step into a church. So basically, you're trying to bring Christ into those places where people would never have encountered him otherwise. And so this is where you need to start to say, okay, what is my sphere of influence? And realize that you are basically a missionary to those people. Now, think of this in terms of what you're studying. You, know, you guys are all here at university. I've been hearing over the weekend the different fields that you're studying in. Can you now think of that as being a mission field? Can you start to say, okay, well, I'm going to be working in the field of business and economics. How do I evangelize that? Um, how do you now start to bring an influence of the gospel into that world, which is such an important world, you know, because economics shapes the rest of our society and will influence the lives of millions. Okay, if that's your field, you've got to start off by studying, you've got to study Catholic social teaching. Um, you've got to start to understand how does the, well, what does economics look like if it's actually filled with the gospel? You know, start to capture the vision of that and say, well, now, how can I influence? You know, so when everyone else is talking about different economic theories, how do I start to say, well, actually, there's a different way of doing this? And it has been tried in different times of history. And actually, countries that did this made a stack load of money. Um, do the research on that. <laughs> um, you know, I was talking to a guy, I forget, I, he's, he's a lecturer here in, in Sydney, a guy by the name of Garrick Small. Um, the Catholic guy who's, if you ever get to sit down with him, just get him to lecture you about Catholic social teaching. But he, I remember he was, he was talking about, um, I think it was in Germany, early 1900s. It was probably one of the only times in the world where, where the, a country actually 
took on Catholic social teaching in a big way. And they became extremely powerful as a result of that. Like, like it worked. <laughs> um, it's one of the only sort of economic theories that really actually works in the real world. Um, but this is the sort of thing we need to be bringing into the discussion. Now, the priests and religious, we can't do that. But, but you guys can. You know, if, if you're working in the field of, of biomedicine you know, or, or doing nursing or you know, any sort of health field, that is an enormous battleground in terms of bringing in a vision for the, the dignity of the human person. Um, you know, we're, we're quickly moving to a point where, where euthanasia is happening even though it's not legalised. Um, there's a number of... Like a, there's a particular part of England where even though they don't have legalised euthanasia in this particular part of England, they have the right to decide who not, which, which patients they can just stop feeding. You know, so if the doctor realises that you don't have the, much of a chance of living, they just withdraw food and water. Where are the Catholics in there <laughs> you know, trying to change that system? That's going to be an ugly battle to fight. You are not going to come out of that without any bruises or you know, scars. But we need to be in there speaking the word, challenging the system. Now, you're not necessarily going to stand in there and say, well, it says here in the Gospel of John that we should do it this way. Um, and I think this is where your, your vocation is challenging because whereas we can stand up and quote the catechism and we can sit there and you know, quote some Pope's teaching, you can't do that in the world. You'll get shut down. You'll lose your job straight away. And so it requires so much more creativity to work out how do you speak the truth in a way that people just know it's true? You know, it, it puts a real emphasis on that, on the fact that our consciences know what is the truth and what is not the truth. You know, how do we start to speak a vision that is beautiful, where people are going to realise, hang on, there is a better way to care for people. You know, there is a better way to do government. There is a better way to do economics. And, and there, there, there's a number of people who have done this down through history but I think this is where we need more training for you guys so that you can start to be exposed to this stuff now in a sense you've got a number of different layers to your mission you've got those key areas in your workplace where you are influencing but then your family is a key part of mission as well I mentioned this in passing the other day like for, for those of you who are seriously feeling called to marriage, you've got to start to see your marriage as a mission field. Your marriage is not for you. you. You are not getting married for you. You're getting married for the sake of the rest of the world. Okay, in the same way that I'm not a priest for me to make me feel good, I'm a priest so that I can pour out my life for everyone else. You've got to start seeing marriage the same way. Okay, because you are an image of the Trinity. Okay, like the domestic church, we call it. You are basically this little ball of light in the midst of the darkness. How do you position yourselves as a married couple so that you can now influence those around you? How do you start to create a marriage which is, which is open to hospitality? You know, you're actively drawing people into your love so that they can realise that this is what a marriage is meant to look like. Now, particularly in a world where there is such a, an epidemic of divorce and family breakdown, where there is such an epidemic of abuse, your, your marriage becomes a place of healing. You know, if you can draw people into your home and they start to realise actually the world's okay, 
actually, I'm okay. You know, and, and it can be the simplest little thing. Once again, you're not necessarily preaching the gospel. You're just loving people. I remember when my sister was at university, she befriended this girl, you know, looked like she had just stepped out of some sort of punk rock band, um, massive mohawk, piercings everywhere, tattoos. And, you know, we're, we're like the most conservative middle-class family in the universe. And my sister brings this girl home, and you could just see everyone like, okay, <laughs> come and take a seat for dinner, okay? Um, but it was the most amazing thing. So I was... I was much younger than my sister, and I, I remember just sitting back watching that, you know, my parents didn't say anything, they didn't judge, they just put up another chair and another serving of food. And what I saw was how a really ordinary family could bring so much healing to somebody. You know, and, and over the next few months and years, I gradually saw how this woman, her whole appearance changed. You know, she went from being really angry and rebellious to being really gentle and, you know, wanting a whole different future. Um, now, there was probably a whole bunch of other things happening in her life, but I suspect that just seeing an ordinary family that loved each other was a key part of that healing. You know, to realise that you can actually have that influence, that's enormous. But then if you feel called, like, if, if, like you, you, don't just marry someone that you love and you're attracted to, marry someone who's got the same vision as you, the same mission as you. But that's actually a key part of the discernment. Um, if you both have the same sort of passion, the same mission, that's when God can, can start to do really amazing things. I heard a story just recently. A group of young couples, this is in the Anglican church, there was a group of young couples in this particular parish who were praying and discerning, saying, God, what do you want to do with us? What, what are you doing? Like, how, do we, how are we going to influence our city? And they felt really drawn to working amongst the, the housing commission areas, you know, because they realised, okay, there's these areas of our city where everyone is poor and dysfunctional and there's drug use and the kids are just seeing abuse at home and it's horrendous. And so they made a decision that they were all going to buy houses in that area and just live as this little cluster of three or four families. So intentionally moving into the worst part of the city with the idea that because they've got so many kids themselves, they want their house to be the place where all the other kids come and play. You know, it becomes like a safe refuge for all these other children to come and be around families that are actually normal. <laughs> and I remember hearing that thinking, that is brilliant, but that is so radical. You know, it's, it's the complete opposite to what the average person is thinking. The average person is thinking, I want the big house with water views because in Sydney that's the meaning of life, isn't it? Everyone says the meaning of life is to see the water. Um, um, but like, everyone's like, I need a bigger house, a bigger mortgage, I need a bigger fence, you know, I've got to protect myself, I've got a bigger insurance policy to so no one scratches my car. Um, that, that, that's, that's secular thinking. It's all about us. Like, can you start to think differently how do you use your time? How do you use your finances? How do you use your family in a way that is going to bring life? It's going to transform the world. Even the same thing in terms of finances. Like, start to think creatively, because this is the key thing. In the lay vocation, you need to think creatively. Priesthood and religious life, other people do the thinking for you most of the time. <laughs> you just get told what to do. It's a lazy vocation. It's an important one, but... <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> 
you, you work pretty hard anyway. <laughs> yes, no, I, I'm, I'm just self-deprecating. Um, um, you need to be extremely creative because you've got to create your mission. Like, like, like whereas, in, in a sense, we have a mission path planned out for us. It's pretty simple. You need to really pray. Like, like you've got to have a depth of spirituality where you start to think, what is my calling? Okay, how do I use my gifting? How do I use this to influence my part of the world? Um, just another story. You heard this years ago from a guy I knew in Adelaide where he, he met this Catholic guy who was you know, really strong in his faith. He was a finance broker, something like that. Um, extremely successful, making a stack load of money in the finance world. Um, but there was always something a little bit mysterious about this guy because he would never tell anyone where he lived. And he, whenever people asked the question, he would sort of avoid it. Um, but this guy gradually became friends with him and eventually he asked you know, if he could drop around sometime for a coffee. And the guy gave him his address and he was like, that can't be right. Why would you live there? And basically, this guy was living, once again, in one of the poorest suburbs in Adelaide, in this really dingy housing commission block. And he's like, hang on, you're, you're earning like a million dollars a year. Why are you living here? And the basic thing was, this guy had made a decision that every bit of money he didn't need, he would put back into the community. And so basically, he realised that there was a whole pile of people who were living in horrendous accommodation and being charged a stupid amount of money for it. And so he decided he was going to buy all these apartment blocks one by one, renovate them, and then sell them back at a low rate, you know, so the people could actually own their own home. And he was basically going through, he would do one, sell it, do the next one, sell it, do the next one, sell it. And this was his side job. You know, so all of his wealth was actually being put back into other people. Um, now, I think it's the same guy, because I, 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 I never heard anything more about it. But then years ago, there was a guy, an Australian man, <clears throat> who was doing the same thing in, in the US. And he was killed by a drug addict one night. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. But if, if it is the same guy, basically, he took his vision to an even bigger field. You know, he realised that in the US, they had even more need. You know, so he started to go and do the same thing there. And eventually died because someone was just, you know, so high on drugs they had no idea. But you hear those sort of stories and you just think, okay, that is a radical vision. You know, how do you use everything you have for the life of the world? Comes back to what I was saying yesterday about how we can only do this if we believe in the resurrection. If, if it's for this life that we live, then you've got to use everything you've got for yourself. But if you truly believe in the resurrection, then you've suddenly got the freedom to spend everything, your time, your energy. Now, the basic Catholic understanding of this is that obviously there are, there are circles of responsibility. <clears throat> your primary responsibility is to your family. Okay, So you, you need to care for them because they're your first care. But the basic idea is once you've, once you've done everything you need there, give the rest to the next layer outwards, okay? The, the, the next layer of influence, those you're working with, those you're friends with, and then the wider community outwards from there. 
And I think that's just a good image to think of in terms of how you use your time, your energy, your finances. You, you need to make sure that th those in the inner circle are not being deprived. You know, you need to give them the time they need. But then ask God saying, well, where else am I meant to be working? Who else am I meant to be influencing? Now, that's the mission of the layperson. In terms of the spirituality of the layperson, this is a kind of a key thing. Your spirituality has to be suited to your way of life. One of the real problems down through the whole history of the church is that spirituality has really been developed and promoted by the priests and the religious. You know, starting from the monastic tradition and then going through the, the missionary mendicants, people who were living in a community, living an ordered way of life where they could have an hour of adoration, they could pray the divine office, they could pray the rosary, and they were the ones who then started to promote spirituality to lay people. But so often the problem was that lay people believed that was the only way to pray. And so if you're, if you're a mother with five children and you're working a part-time job and your husband's working 12 hours a day, the chances of getting an hour of adoration are probably zero, <laughs> um, unless you've got kids that are really well-behaved and can sleep at the back of the church. Good luck with that one. <laughs> the chance of being able to find five minutes in the day, you know, to sit down and pray morning prayer, you know, or pray the rosary. Um, I, I see families who try and pray a decade of the rosary after dinner, and it's like umpiring a football match. You're like, sit down, stop hitting your sister. You behave. Hail Mary, full of grace. Shut up. Okay. Um, <laughs> you are heroic. Like, I have so much respect for married couples, you know, trying to bring faith to their children. St. Francis de Sales is the person you need to be reading if you, if, you, if you feel called to the lay vocation. You need to get a copy of the book called The Introduction to the Devout Life. Okay, and you need to read that. Francis de Sales was revolutionary in that he was pretty much the first person in the history of the church to write a book specifically for lay spirituality. Uh, and that was around 1600s, 1700s. Took us a while to get there. <laughs> and basically what he says in that book is he says, you know, the, the spirituality of the priest is going to be very different to the spirituality of the butcher or the soldier you know, or, you know, the politician. Every one of them has to have a different way of prayer. You need to find a, a way of praying that is going to fit your way of life. Sometimes you're going to be in a place where you can sit down for half an hour in silence and pray with the Bible. But if you're a mother caring for children 24 hours a day, you need to find a way of meditating on the move as you're going. And he gives a lot of very practical tips for that. You know, so seriously, if if you want to learn how to pray, get that book. It is still an absolute classic. But I think this is, I suppose, the key thing. Once again, when, when you're young, when you're single, when you're studying, this is the time when you need to learn how to pray. This is where you've got to develop that relationship with Christ and actually get to the point where you know how to meditate. Because a, a, a prayer relationship is very much like any human relationship. You start off by talking about the weather, you know, you talk about sport and every day it's the same conversation. But gradually as the friendship develops, you start to feel at home with the person. You start to feel very comfortable with them. 
And you almost start to meditate upon them, you know, particularly in a, in a love relationship. Like if you're, if you're entering towards a marriage, you actually start to spend a lot of time meditating on the person. When you're not with them, you're thinking about the last thing they said to you, or you're thinking about how beautiful their smile is, you know, or you know, how caring they are when they care for their grandmother. You know, you're, you're, you're falling in love with them by thinking about them. That's the point you need to get to in your, in your relationship with Christ. You've got to get to a point where prayer is no longer just a duty, but it's actually something which fills you with joy. Like, like you enjoy thinking about Jesus. And so, so that would be my challenge to you. In, in, these, in these years before you start getting frantically busy, you probably feel like you're busy already, but you're not. <laughs> um, you have no idea how, how frantic the world is once you step out into full-time work and life and family. Um, you've got to use this time well to really develop a good grounding in, in, in that love relationship with Jesus. Once you've got that, prayer becomes easier, I think, because it becomes more adaptable. Yeah, in the same way, like once you've developed a close relationship with another person, that relationship becomes flexible. It can mould, it can move depending on the circumstances of life. Um, you know, if you're really good friends with someone, it doesn't matter what happens, you're still in connection with them. But if you're only very superficial friends with them, the smallest thing can break it. And so I think this is where you've got to get to a point where your spirituality, your way of prayer can then move, it can mould, it can be shaped, okay? And, and I, like I say, meditation has to be a key part of it. One of the key reasons, I think, why Jesus became human was so that we could encounter him through normal human life. You know, everything you do can become a meditation on the life of Christ. I often think this, particularly with young mothers, um, because they, they haven't got a single second to themselves all day. Um, but I often think, like, you're holding a baby, you're feeding a baby, that is a perfect opportunity to meditate on the child Jesus. You know, meditate on the incarnation. Why would God love me this much that he would become this helpless? Like, like you've got this image right in front of you, right there. The same way that other people would pray with icons or prayer cards, you've actually got the living thing <laughs> there. Um, but if, if you're at a point where, where you can actually allow that to feed your soul, um, if you're working, you know, as you're working, meditate on Christ working. Um, you know, particularly if you're doing labouring, I think that that's probably easier. If you're doing a desk job, you're probably thinking, oh, I don't think Jesus did this. Um, <laughs> working on a computer, uh, maybe not. Um, but, but there is something there where you can actually stop and just reflect on the incarnation. Like, like Jesus worked. You know, Jesus knew what it was like to be exhausted at the end of a long day. He knew what it was like to be hungry. So every moment of your day is, a, is a, a window into the mystery. If you've got to a point where your heart is yearning for that and your heart is able to, to seek it. Okay. Once again, like I say, you've got to read the scriptures. The scriptures have to be central to your prayer life as a lay person. Um, devotional prayers are very important. Things like the rosary are a powerhouse. But... I think one of the great weaknesses in the Catholic Church is that that's all we do. Catholics still don't read the Bible. We've been trying to say this for the last 500 years, like, read the Bible. <laughs> Ever since we got the printing press, like, you've got it, you've got the word. You've got to like, get into the habit of carrying a Bible with you. 
Get a small one. You've got it on your phone. Um, Once again, while you are single, while you are studying, develop a habit of regularly just taking a scripture and just reflecting on it. Set an alarm on your phone to go off every half hour and then just read one verse. Um, If you can start to develop a habit of that, 20, 30 years' time, you're going to find that that has become an amazing strength for your life. Um, And it will very likely also open up opportunities for ministry because the person at the desk next to you at work is going to say, why is your phone going off every half an hour? Like, oh, I'm just reading something. (laughs) You know, opportunity for a conversation. Um, but, But this is where you've got to be creative. You've got to find opportunities to encounter Christ in the ordinary every moment. So I think that this is kind of the key thing. Like, you are the ones who are going to bring about the transformation of the world. Just final thing I'll say. To a large degree, you've got to do this yourselves. And once again, I don't want to sound like I'm dissing all my brothers in the clergy and the priesthood, but the sad reality is that the vast majority of priests are absolutely clueless in terms of evangelization. And I really want to say that quite respectfully, but it's because just the culture of the church has not been there. You know, the culture of the church is still focused in on the bubble. Um, Even when we talk about evangelization, we're simply talking about how do we get more people to come to church? Evangelization is bigger than that. Okay, like that, that's the final stage of evangelization is get them into church. What we need to be doing is working out how do we influence the people out there in the world? And that is a long-term goal. That is a long-term vision. You know, so where everything in the church operates on a yearly cycle, pretty much. Okay, we're going to organize this event. We run the event. We celebrate the event. Oh, look, it's now Christmas. Let's go back and next year we'll run the event again. And we just do this again and again every year. The the key thing about the lay vocation is that it is a long-term mission based on relationships. You are going to be developing relationships with people who you'll still be friends with in 50 years' time. It's not about evangelizing them in the next 12 months. I mean, that's great if if it's possible. But the reality is it's probably going to be a slow burn. It's going to be... You are just going to be winning trust. You're going to be revealing a different way of life to them. And it might be 20 years' time before they turn around and say, why are you different? Why is your family still together? Why do, they, why do your children love you? <laughs> you know, I was talking the other day about my, about my sister's family. Like my, they, 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 just, they just love each other, you know? And I was hearing a story about how you know, they're heading off on holiday overseas. And my nephew, who's like 16, all of his friends were saying, like, why do you want to go on holidays with your parents? And he's like, because I like them. <laughs> we get along well with each other. You know, it's the simplest little thing, but it's, it's, it's countercultural. You know, like, like he doesn't even realise that he's evangelising there, but he actually is. He's, you know, he'd, he'd probably be horrified if I said that to him, but... He's, he's proclaiming a vision of love and life. You know, that, that this is what happens if you actually live a gospel vision. You know, you like each other. <laughs> um, a key part of it is, is simply just being friends with people who everyone else probably would have given up on. 
Um, there's a guy I know in Perth. Um, he's an amazing evangelist, actually. He's, he's actually one of Australia's top stockbrokers. Um, great example of a lay, of a lay missionary. Um, he, if I can paraphrase his story, but he, he went to school. He had this good mate. Um, you know, after school, he had a conversion. You know, so he started to really take his faith seriously. His friend went the complete opposite direction. His friend got into drugs, got into a bikey gang. Um, for about 13 years, he was heavily involved in this bikey gang around Kalgoorlie. Um, he was running drugs. He was hiding guns in his kitchen. He was running brothels. And his, his, his mate, who was the Christian, clearly didn't approve. You know, he thought, man, what are you doing? Like, you are not going to live long if you keep living this sort of life. But every year, he would call him up once or twice a year and just say, look, I'm thinking about you. I just want to make sure you're safe. Are you okay? I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say anything about what you're doing. I just want to know you're safe. He did that for 13 years. 13 years, he'd just call him up and say, are you okay? Are you safe? Until one year, he called him up and his friend said, I need help. I've got to get out. And he said, right, let me tell you about the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> His friend had a massive conversion um, and turned his life completely upside down. You know, you, you look at this guy now, he ended up becoming the youth minister in this community, um, you know, and the kids loved him because he, he was actually like Mr. Australia, I think, like he was like this massive bodybuilder. He looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so the kids are like, you're the greatest. Um, but I, I think it's such a classic example of lay evangelization. Um, it's not neat, it doesn't follow a program, it doesn't follow a schedule, it's just faithful. You know, it's just that faithful relationship. Um, and one day when the person's ready, the grace will be there, you know, the spirit will move. You know, so for you to kind of see, like in your workplace, in your family, even your extended family, just be faithful, just be loving people, just allow the scriptures to ooze out of you, okay? Just always being Christ in that place. But also to realise that to a large degree, you've, you've got to carve that path yourself. No one's going to tell you how to do it. Because like I say, you know, the, those in charge of the church don't always have a great vision for it. Some do. You know, there, there are some priests who are brilliant and you need to cling on to them and get them to guide you. Um, but a lot of others, their vision of the lay vocation simply means, can you take up the collection at Mass? Um, you need to find people who are going to inspire you. You need to read stuff that's going to inspire you. Um, and you need to be prepared to get in there and make mistakes. I think people would like to have a church which is clean and hygienic, you know, where all of our mission was completely black and white and uncompromised. And we, we could say that we were never going to be influenced by the evils of the world or be around people who are morally corrupting. That, that world is, is, is a, it's a, it's a fantasy. The reality is you've got to be in the middle of a place where sometimes the decisions aren't black and white. I remember years ago, I had a chance to sit down to dinner with Brian Harradine, who's someone you probably never have even heard of. Brian Harradine was the longest serving senator in Australia's history. Um, he was a very devout Catholic from Tasmania. And because of the way the Tasmanian Senate works, he, for a long time, he had the balance of power in, par in Parliament. 
And so he, was, he had enormous influence and a lot of people hated him because of that. I remember having this dinner conversation with him and he was talking about the constant moral dilemma that he was in because he understood that there are so many important things to be fighting for, but he couldn't do all of them. And so sometimes he had to make this compromise. For the sake of winning over here, I need to give ground here. And he, he talked about how often, like, he believed that fighting against abortion was the most important thing. But that sometimes meant that he had to give ground in terms of workers' rights, you know, or economic policy, stuff that he was still passionate about. And, it, and, it, and you could see it taxed him seriously. Like, like you could see the strain on him, even after all those years, where he was like, he felt so conflicted. But I think, once again, that's a good example of what the lay vocation looks like. Um, it's not neat. It's not hygienic, you know, where we know exactly where everyone stands. You've got to be in there listening to the Holy Spirit and doing the best you can. Um, you know, if you're in the medical field, there are going to be times where it could be a bet each way as to which is the right decision. Um, you could be finding situations where if I say this, I'm going to lose my job. Is it better to keep my job and fight a bigger battle later? Who can tell you what the right answer is? I don't know. Um, but this is where you need a real depth of spirituality. You need to get to a point where you can really listen to the Holy Spirit. Learn how to listen to the prompting of the Spirit every day so that you know which way you're going. So I think, yeah, very simply, educate yourselves. Whatever field you're in, whatever it is you're studying, do the research. Learn how the church speaks into that area. Start to wrestle with how would you speak into that? How would you develop policy around that? Um, Start to develop a real passion for the people that you can influence. And like I say, look outside the bubble. Start to look at what's really happening out there. And I think this is actually where we need to really wake the church up. Um, we've got to learn how to look outside the bubble and say, okay, we've got to get into the game. And we've actually got to push ourselves into a place where we've got no other option. You know, rather than seeing the mission as being an optional extra, you know, something I do casually on the weekends. Like I was really calling you guys the other day to like that place of real conversion where you give your whole life to Christ. The image that's sometimes used is the image of, you know, some of the ancient battles. Um, you know, I, I forget which battle it was, but there was a famous battle where as the army had arrived on the shore in their ships and the, the enemy army was in front of them, the captain of the army went and burnt all the ships. And he basically said, we don't leave unless we win. <laughs> you know, there is no escape. And I think we almost need something of that mentality. That we've got to get away from that lifeboat mentality of we're going to go on mission until it hurts and then we're going to withdraw back to our lifeboats. Burn the lifeboats. <laughs> okay? We need to get to a point where we realise we either win this battle or the world dies. There is no other option. Okay? We've got to commit, commit ourselves to say, if I do this, I do it completely. I, I invest myself completely in prayer, real genuine conversion. And I start to care about the world to the point where I'm prepared to get hurt for it. You know, I'm not just looking out for my friends and family anymore, but I, I, I genuinely experience my heart being broken when I see 
what I see on the news, you know, when I, what I read in the newspaper, what I see in the eyes of people when you walk through the city and you start to realize you are my problem. If you're depressed, I'm the only one that's got the solution. So that'd be my final call to you. Um, walk through the city with your eyes open. Look at what's there. Let it disturb you. But then take it to prayer and say, God, give me something. <laughs> there, is, there are no simple solutions, but give me something. Give me some way of how I'm going to take that little bit of ground for you. I'm going to play my little part to try and change this culture and win it for you. That was Father Dave Callahan with the lay vocation, The Leaven in the Dough. This talk was recorded as part of the UTS Catholic Society Beginning of Year Retreat. To find out more about the Catholic Society at your local university, visit unicatholics.org.au. And for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.